This week's episode is brought to you by Bureau Veritas. At Bureau Veritas, each and every member of the team is by your side to help you navigate your decarbonization journey. This is Green Seas, the podcast by Tradewinds about the environment and the business of the ocean. I'm Eric Priante Martin, and today we're going to travel to Singapore to listen to a discussion about the future of ship recycling. The irony of shipping is that it's long been a circular economy because ships recycled at the end of their life. But shipping has also taken criticism for the way those ships are recycled. But the ship demolition industry is headed for changes. A few months ago, enough countries finally ratified the Hong Kong International Convention for the Safe and Environmentally Sound Recycling of Ships for it to become a global law. A key ratification was by Bangladesh, one of the world's largest ship recycling countries. Upcoming requirements for ship demolition to get cleaner were a key backdrop for a recent event in Singapore, the Tradewinds Ship Recycling Forum. Our editor-in-chief, Julian Bray, emceed the two days of discussions. Let's tune in. Next up, uh, the view from Bangladesh. It's a great pleasure to welcome Mohammed Zal Islam, the Managing Director of PHP Shipbreaking. Mohammed. Uh, I'd like to start with the biggest news of the year. These are excerpts from Islam's presentation. That Bangladesh has ratified Hong Kong Convention. So after, <laughs> so after 14 years of hard work, finally uh, Bangladesh has ratified. And by doing that, all the requirements of all the criteria of Hong Kong Convention is met. So this is, um, I think, a huge year, and in next two years' time, all the yards has to be Hong Kong Convention compliant if they want to recycle ships. Around 45% of world tonnage is recycled in Bangladesh. So it was very important for us that Bangladesh also shows the way that we can do responsible and sustainable ship recycling as well. Uh, you know, um, the driving force for improvement in Bangladesh, uh, I think the Norwegian embassy, the Norwegian government played a very strong role. So the SenseRed project that was introduced by Norway uh, around 10 years back, I think that changed the mindset of the ship recyclers in Bangladesh, also the regulators. So today, uh, you know, the last three years, uh, one person, who really fought and put pressure on the regulators and ship recyclers was the Norwegian ambassador to Bangladesh. And I'm very honored that the ambassador is here with us today. If he can stand for all of uh, you to see, and I need a big round of applause. Uh, this person was single-handedly made sure that Bangladesh ratifies Hong Kong Convention. So the SenseCheck project uh, has been working. Uh, to make sure there is a bridge between the regulators and the ship recyclers, because there are a lot of communication gaps and a lot of mistrust that were prevailing previously. So the SenseRec project made sure that uh, the regulators and all the major stakeholders sit together, understand each, each other's role, and support each other to make sure that we can go up to the level of Hong Kong Convention. So I'm really uh, proud to be part of this 
Sensrec project for last 10 years. I've been with the project as well, and it has brought tremendous benefit to the industry. Now, uh, you know, uh, we, we talk about that uh, Bangladesh has only four uh, HKC approved yard, but I would like to highlight one thing, that the four yards that are HKC compliant, uh, PHP, SN Corporation, Unit 2, then Kabir Steel, and Kea Ship Recycling, the plots are really big in Bangladesh. And if you, if you look at the screen, that each yard can bring four cape sizes at a time, minimum. So four cape here, four here, eight, then here four, 12, and then this yard can bring three. So this four yard itself at a time can bring 15 vessels. And if uh, another 20 or 30 comes on board, I think um, we don't have to worry about responsible ship recycling in Bangladesh. So that's a great, great thing to see because uh, other countries, the plots are small, and each yard can bring only one vessel, whereas we can bring more than four or five vessels at a time. Now we're going to fast forward to the final session on day two, where we listen to the perspective of ship owners and GMS chief executive Anil Sharma, whose company is among the leading buyers of ships for demolition. We have uh, Captain Wolfram Gunterman, the director of regulatory affairs of Hapag Lloyd, Annette Ronov, the Chief Sustainability Officer for Volunius Willemsen. Jesse Lynn Lai, the Head of Public Affairs for Southeast Asia, Oceania at Maersk. Kumiko Iwasa, the Chair of the Ship Recycling Committee of the Japanese Shipowners Association. Sotoris Rapsis, the Secretary General of the European Community Shipowners Associations. And last but never ever least, Anil Sharma, the Founder and CEO of GMS. Please. We've heard so much over the last few days about the progress being made, the contradictions and uh, uh, problems that the, uh, the overlapping regulations uh, make, and then the practical issues around, um, around working with these things. I'd just like to start off talking to the, uh, the ship owners in particular particular um, about how the ratification and then the entry into force is changing the perspective uh, for them whether it has whether it will whether you're going beyond or beneath you know what does this add up to and how do you think it'll change the uh, change the market could I turn to you Annette uh, first of all for your perspective from uh, volumes films of course thank you uh, Julian um I think initially we are really pleased that it has been ratified. We are a strong advocate for a level playing field as has been discussed uh, earlier on today. We really need that in an industry as ours, which is so international and subject to kind of local, national, international and the global uh, uh, regional um, regulations. Um, will it change how we work? Um, Valenius Willemsen has a long history in ship responsible ship recycling. We have a had a policy. We have been a founding member, one of the founding members of the SRTI, and we have a responsible ship recycling policy and also a human rights policy. We have since 2009 recycled 32 vessels in a responsible manner. That means that we have uh, vetted the yards 
before we, we select them and have supervision uh, by external uh, surveyors that it's being done in, in the right manner and, and also completion report outwards. And we report on, uh, as part of the SRTI, on, on which vessels uh, and where they have been recycled. So I don't think it will change the way we work. Uh, coming back to uh, the good um, presentation by Nick, I think there are other regulations coming from the EU. We are a uh, listed company in Norway, so subject to EU regulations, both from the sustainability reporting directive, but also the uh, uh, due diligence directive. And that means that it looks at the whole value chain, not only our own operations and inside uh, what we can directly con control, but we have responsibility throughout the supply chain, both upstream and, and also downstream. So in that respect, we, we will still have to be uh, compliant. Gunther, like uh, Valenius Willemsen, you've actually paid money to have ships recycled to the, to the levels that you've been aspiring to in recent years. Does the, uh, the entry into force of the Hong Kong Convention change the game for you in any particular way? And do you think the actors you're working with will be changed by the entry into force? I'm, I'm afraid, although we are definitely pleased that the Hong Kong Convention has been ratified finally, we still have a long way to walk until I think some of you guys even calculated the seconds minutes <laughs> until uh, June 2025. No, we are uh, around now 476 years, a German-based company, so that means we are uh, also tightly married to the EU SRR, and uh, actually we have committed in our, uh, in our recycling policy, which is clearly visible on, on our webpage and also part of, similar as Annette mentioned, we are also a founding member of the Ship Recycling Transparency Initiative. So that's where we are. We, we have committed ourselves to the EU SRR. We are strictly adhering it. And when it comes to reflagging, we, we don't see a level playing field. Actually, you will be astonished about what I'm going to say. Yes, we reflagged the ship, which recently went to a facility in Turkey, eh? to a German flag, to be fully compliant, to be absolutely sure to be by the book. So please understand I'm not going to talk about money and prices. We are with competitors here. <laughs> I think historically you, you had, but I, I appreciate that. But it costs money to do that sort of thing, yeah. basically. Yeah. Nothing is for free. Nothing is for free. <coughs> Jesse Lynn Lai from, yeah. uh, from Maersk, could I ask you the same sure. point? Obviously, you've, Maersk has a long track record in aspiring to high standards. You've taken a few steps forward and a few steps back on times. But wh where do you stand today with the entry into force? Oh, thank you for the opportunity to, to share. Um, because likewise, uh, we are also a founding member of the SRTI because we believe that information is key. By publishing all the parts and, and present information, it will empower people to make decisions. And, and it, it impacts the entire value chain on how maritime or, or ship recycling is being perceived. And of course, we welcome uh, any feedback. And, and uh, since 2016, we have developed the Responsible Ship Recycling Standard 
that is to provide guidance in the absence of overarching um, uh, guidelines or, or conventions that is uh, in, in effect uh, presently. So I think from our experience working with our shipyards, uh, th we have seen good results in terms of like not having any health or safety incidents being reported since uh, 2017. We believe it's a good uh, indicator that this model works for us and we strongly encourage the broader industry to adopt uh, similar standards and, and pursue a greater ambition to uh, set a better direction for the entire industry. So Tiris at the, uh, the far end, um, we just heard from three of the biggest, uh, uh, three of the most committed European Scandinavian ship owners uh, on, this, uh, on this issue. Does the ratification clarify uh, the position for more broadly European ship owners? And what concerns have you got about these lingering and very deep-seated contradictions and how they can be resolved? I, I think there are reasons to be optimistic after ratification of the Hong Kong Convention. Um, to be honest with you, when we visited with the Norwegian ambassador, Bangladesh, um, it was four months ago, five months ago. Nobody really believed that Bangladesh will ratify the, the convention. And uh, we're quite pessimistic that we're running out of time and that the Hong Kong Convention will never be ratified or enter into force. It's a tremendous success. The fact that we have a global standard in place. This is a reason to be optimistic. The other reason to be optimistic is to look at the progress made, the real tremendous progress made in the yards, in India, in Bangladesh, even in anticipation of having a global standard in place. And to be honest with you, the EU ship recycling regulation also played a role there. <laughs> On the other hand, there are reasons to be pessimistic. And I would start with um, taking a look at the geopolitical situation and with the EU becoming more cautious towards open trade and introducing certain regulations not only to um, enhance the environmental standards but also as in a way to repatriate back to the EU industrial activities. And this is also a situation that we need to deal with. Uh, for instance, there was um, um, a document leaked this morning that the US and the EU are seriously considering to introduce tariffs uh, import tariffs on steel and aluminium up to 25% in the next few weeks. So we're seeing that the geopolitical environment is changing, is quite unstable, and this is also reflected in, in the environmental regulations we're dealing with. I don't need to repeat or list uh, the number of the regulations that are in place both at international and EU uh, level, but we shouldn't give up. I think that we made a tremendous progress the last few months and we should keep pushing. We should bring more into the front line positive stories about the progress, the tremendous progress made uh, in the yards in India and in Bangladesh and to engage also more the European policy makers. It's unfortunate that they're not present here today, uh, but it's not only the Commission. Um, some people may think that 
the EU operates like the IMO. It's, it's the opposite. We deal with politicians, elected politicians, and we need to deliver uh, the message uh, from our industry. Some people said that it's not a big deal because it's the European regulations. Still, though, uh, EU companies control 40% of the global fleet. Thank you. I'd like to come back, uh, if we have time, to talk a little more about the, uh, the impact of the, uh, the, the European uh, provisions and the possible uh, amendments there. Uh, before we do that, though, Kamiko, uh, may I ask you for your perspective from the Japanese Ship Owners Association? Oh, yes. Thank you very much for sharing us. Um, for us Japanese owners, uh, the news of the implementation of the Hong Kong Convention is just uh, really uh, optimistic news for us. And for a long time advocate for the HKC, uh, for us it's a really fruitful news. And uh, we are mm, partially uh, really contribute to we are proud to contribute to uh, make it implemented. Uh, as a JSA, uh, we have recommended to major member companies that uh, they sell their ships for recycling yards uh, that comply with the HKC even before the requirement of the activation has not been uh, fulfilled. And uh, um, many members had actually selected excellent yards complying with the HKC as buyers of their ships. Um, I think maybe those uh, good shipping companies, uh, uh, European shipping companies, uh, many of our members, Japanese companies, uh, actually sell the ships, the uh, HKC compliant yard, referring to the Class NK certificate, and uh, some of them uh, even added to the, their own elements, uh, additionally to the HKC element, uh, like uh, IHM. Uh, they voluntarily already prepared the IHM, IHM before they sell, the yards, sell their ships to the yards. And uh, uh, as the JSA also uh, send delegation uh, to the yard, uh, India, Bangladesh, uh, China, more than 10 times for this de decade, and together with the Japanese government, Class NK, even labor unions. So we believe uh, those actions uh, contribute uh, and motivate to uh, yards recycling yards to upgrade by, their, by themselves and uh, so, uh, so thank, thank you Kamiko for that let's, let's leave it there <laughs> sorry it's no, become no, too long no no no, no. thank you thank yeah. you so much Anil okay. could I Anil Sharma could I put to you yesterday morning um, despite the optimism around the ratification that uh, as Sotiris said, uh, that even people quite close to this a few months ago were not uh, actually mm -hmm. believing would happen. Uh, it, it did come through. But we heard from Maharesh Parma uh, from India, who accused uh, uh, the world's ship owners, collectively, many of the larger ship owners, of course, of what he colorfully said were games of convenience. 
that was uh, helping to drive down prices and avoid their their uh, their responsibilities. Um, for the Hong Kong Convention to be uh, a force, it needs to be complied with, and the national governments will need to uphold their standards. Do you believe the frameworks of the national governments in Pakistan, Bangladesh, and India, and possibly Pakistan, will be able to maintain those uh, frameworks to hold the yards to, uh, to adequate standards? Yeah. Let me start first. I'll answer your question, uh, but I want to also go back to some of the responses we have received here. Um, the answer, the easy answer is uh, yes and no, meaning uh, some of the governments will be. We have a two-year runway, and especially when it comes to India, there was a long runway ahead of us. Uh, in fact, next week, as you know, there's a huge conference in India on Maritime Summit, and there was a huge session on ship recycling with a lot of uh, you know, world players at stage. So there's a strong commitment from the Indian government to do that. I see also the same kind of commitment coming out of Bangladesh that's coming in. So I think that will be there. There'll be a lot of debates and discussions about industry standards. So I think that can be done. Uh, Pakistan, I'm not too sure. I saw Asif Ali Khan's presentation. There is an attempt, but I can't comment on that. I think they're a little bit behind. But I want to say something, because when I hear uh, the, 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 the ship owners here, and what you said was the very beginning opening statement that um, the D word, right? And this should not, this early conference, you're not going to hear the D word. I'm going to bring up the D word in a second. But what you had here was the H word, right? The Hong Kong Convention. And when I heard the speakers, it dawned on me, I wish I had a pen of paper. I was realizing when a ship owner sells a ship, especially a European ship owner, he or she, they have a, lots of risks they have to address, right? You have your environmental, social, governance, operational, technical, uh, financial, um, technological, whatever you can. So there would be about five to ten risks that they have to address. What I find is when you're a listed European company, your biggest risk becomes your headline risk. Last thing an owner wants to see is themselves being on the front page of your newspaper for the wrong reasons, right? Even if the appearances have done everything great, it's still the appearance is there. So as a result, you know, you're ready to give up the financial, everything else, to come into the, uh, to make sure you cover the headline risk. My view is very clear. You cannot have sustainable ship recycling without taking into consideration economic risks. As a gentleman who asked in a previous uh, session, I'm going to build a ship in Europe, I'm uh, sorry, uh, flag it Europe, and will you give me cheap money or loans and residual values? You know, that risk has to be there. I mean, the financial value has to be there. Business cannot run on sustainability forever without saying there is no regard to economic value. So what we are trying to create now is, first of all, standards, and then how you create value and sustainability. And why I'm bringing the D word, the decarbonization, we have got the whole ship recycling narrative wrong. We just have it wrong. We have been concentrating on EU versus HKC for the last 10 years. The real thing is, because we are talking about a circular economy and climate change and decarbonization, think for a minute how ship recycling plays a role. At least in India alone, I think we must have recycled about 65 million tons of steel so far. So what does it mean? First, let's look at the value. Why the Indian subcontinent pays more money 
than the yards in Europe. Very simple. 90% of a ship is steel. Now in India, out of this, I'm using India as an example. Out of 90% of the steel, 70% is going to go straight into rolling mills. There is no melting furnace. 10% is going to go into a melting furnace. Another 10% is going to go straight repurpose, reuse. That's the economic value. Now take it in Europe. You recycle a ship in Europe, 85% of the steel is going to go into melting scrap. Either into a furnace in Europe, or you will transport it to Turkey, and I think Turkey said right now maybe we have too much scrap. So that goes in. So where decarbonization comes in, I'm just closing. <laughs> so so the, the three biggest, you know, uh, if you want to use the word polluters to the environment is, first is energy production, you know, through coal and whatever else. Second is industrials, making steel. Third is tra transportation. I mean, maybe the order is different. So now when you recycle all this steel, you're addressing, not the, you're addressing the, the issue of uh, this uh, energy, less energy is needed to recycle, reuse a vessel. There is less transportation and, and, the, and the industrials, you know, the steel making, you're reducing the use. So that's where the value is coming. So HKC is creating this playing field, yes, that's a, another vertical. The regulation. You raise a very interesting uh, uh, issue there, and I'd like to uh, uh, discuss this with the, the owners. Jessa Lynn, uh, Maersk, you yeah. uh, did do, have had investigations into uh, perhaps constructing your own recycling yard and turning that into a green steel feeder for your ships. Uh, is that uh, project ongoing? What results are there? And do you, do you feel that having that process as part of your own supply chain can genuinely be seen as a sustainability uh, asset for you as a company? Yeah, we, we, I think this is the only way for us to, to move forward sustainably and really close to the loop when it comes to circular economy for, for ship building and ship recycling because if we don't source sustainably and start having green steel as part of your ship building when you order the new vessels, there's no way that we can raise the value of scrap metal from ship recycling. So it has to start from there. And I think with that in place, with that mindset in place, then you could empower your, the yards to be able to raise the value and close the loop. And of course, it needs to be a requirement when you put in the order for, for your new vessels. So. Um, is it, we is it, sorry. Yeah. Please we, we don't have the, um, the, the specific project that we are able to finalize and announce at this moment, but um, we're setting that and we have few partners that are currently in talks with to, to go ahead with this strategy. And, you know, when, when you're talking about a lot of the uh, smelters, uh, steel mills are still really powering uh, with, with uh, coal and, and conventional uh, fields, it's not ideal uh, at, at the present moment because mm. it's just, um, we're, we're not rethinking uh, steel production in, in a sustainable manner at this it's point. It's a chicken and egg situation. Yeah. You know, there's a, uh, an issue with the production. Exactly. So uh, for MERS right now, we, we have managed to break the whole um, greenfield uh, chicken and egg uh, 
a debate and hopefully you know the next step for us is able to deal with um, green steel direction. Annette, uh, the Volunese Willemsen <coughs> companies and those you have uh, uh, stakes in are very closely involved with um, <coughs> uh, customers, the shippers who are close to consumer markets. So things such as their, their green footprint, fuels mm. are very important to you and your, and your clients. Um, does the, does the green recycling, the green steel aspect potentially of recycling responsibly add something to your uh, sustainability, sustainability footprint for your customers as yet? And if not yet, do you think it will come? Not yet, but I think definitely it will come. We've seen the same journey. Uh, we have the OEMs of the car manufacturers as our key clients. They're doing that on aluminium, uh, increasing their recycling and moving from steel to aluminium. So I think uh, this will come to us, us too. Um, but it's not there yet. I think that the, the moment is uh, the D word, decarbonisation, which is, which is key. Well, personally, I would uh, agree to the possibility to explore what, what can be done with regards to green steel. Whereas I think we, we, we have clearly to realize that we have to get get a clear order how to straighten out things we and i have to come to the regulatory aspects we have to straighten out the interaction between hong kong convention eu srr the basel convention how will this be integrated with regards to the downstream waste management and what i would also like to emphasize i'm not downplaying what we are discussing here this is just one small lego brick in the whole spiel we have greenhouse gas reduction we have corporate responsibility, social responsibility, biodiversity, protection of whales was mentioned briefly. It is really in our shop three pillars which we really want to fill with, with, with life. So to get the regulatory landscape plain, that's really the challenging task which is ahead of us until June 2025. And yeah, you are right with the furnaces, with the coal, and we have now the Fit for 55 onshore power supply for all European ports as from January 1st, 2030. Where is the electricity coming from? Is it coming from brown coal or other coal? And I'm switching off my clean auxiliary engines. So what I want is, I don't want to distract. It's a huge wide ocean where we are sailing currently. So without downplaying, this is one piece, but we have really to follow the small baby steps first. Straighten the regulatory landscape, please regulators, and that we have legal certainty as ship owners and don't get a dawn rate visit. <laughs> don't quote that. <laughs> So, Tiris, we've uh, we've heard from the, the, the three last speakers. They have what well, probably at least a thousand ships on the water between them, and they are at the uh, the top level involved in consumer markets ultimately with their with their customers. There are an awful lot of ship owners, even still in Europe, as you say, with forty percent of the world fleet, that really are not even close to that, and all of smaller owners as well, in particular. Um, is talk of green steel and the circular economy relevant? to the small European ship owner? And if not, how can it be made, made relevant and important to them? I would agree that the first thing that we need to address urgently 
is the uncertainty, the legal uncertainty we are dealing with. Um, I'm, I'm going to give you an example. Uh, the Basel ban entered into force December 2019. Up to that point, the Commission um, went and inspected um, yards uh, in Alang in India. They made concrete comments, they published the reports. We were assessing also their own reports. We were pushing the, the Commission to, to do the final step and approve these yards into the EU list. What happened with the Basel ban, out of the blue? Although everybody knew that the Basel ban will enter into force in December 2019, and as mentioned before, the EU had already transposed into the EU law the Basel ban um, uh, for many years already. The Commission said that uh, their legal interpretation is that under the, after the Basel ban enter into force, they're not even allowed to go and assess the yards in a lang. Just to have a measure of, uh, of the scale of the uncertainty we're facing and we're dealing with at EU level. And it took a new, a new law to, to be proposed and go through all the legislative process in Brussels, um, the West Shipment uh, Regulation, to to get the Commission to open again this legal possibility to assess the yards and get them into the list. So from our point of view, we need to urgently address the legal uncertainty. We have three main blocks, mm -hmm. the Basel ban uh, and the um, uh, West Shipment Regulation, the EU Shipwrecking Regulation and the Hong Kong Convention to add on top of that taxonomy. Um, somebody from the previous speakers mentioned taxonomy, which is quite important not only to the listed companies, but to everybody, to all shipping companies. It regulates access of the companies to financing. And the EU ship recycling regulation is on the list of the do no significant harm, meaning that even if you run a zero emission ship tomorrow, you can be disqualified for uh, green financing because somebody in the Commission might consider that you don't tick all the boxes of the EU ship regulation. So we need urgently legal certainty, a global level playing field, and of course, sound environmental and safety uh, standards. I can only hear here on that. It's such an important area, and I sometimes feel there are lots of politicians, and they will say, well, we expect the private industry to, mm. to help here. Mm. And that's fine. We will find, as you're talking about the economics, we will find the most effective, efficient way of getting there, but they need to take the responsibility to provide the framework that we can navigate in. And uh, I think that's one of the biggest risks, because if you are, when we have that, the ones that are s sustainable and finding the right solutions, they will be the ones that are surviving and, and uh, uh, in the future and being economical and, and profitable. Yeah, but if I may, I mean, that's my point. If mm. you had the open forum to do that, you yeah. could, but then yeah. you have this big regulatory issue. You don't want that knock on the door, right? Mm. No. Uh, or you don't want to have risk, and that just mm. ties your hand. Mm. Mm. You well, only I, I, I have the impression in this debate, and I guess it, it isn't really the forum to try and get down to the, the nuts and bolts of how to unpack this, but there isn't much optimism, to use that warm 
uh, fluffy word, that this can be solved or will be solved in the, in the near or even the medium term. Uh, so, Tiris, I mean, if we could, could ask you, I mean, you are closest to this. Uh, is, there, is that a fair interpretation? Of I'm, I'm by nature optimistic, to be honest with you, and nobody believed that we're going to get the Hong Kong Convention, get ratified five months before. I mean, if it's a pragmatic approach, I think that we should take up on the fight, bring up the positive stories, make also concrete proposals, how can we change the situation, and bring also the policy makers into the game to get them engaged. I don't think uh, that we should be pessimistic. We should give the fight. Sure. Anil, mm. the, how do you see this, uh, this uncertainty and the nervousness amongst ship owners playing out when it comes to day-to-day -day business? Yeah. Delivering <laughs> ships that need to be recycled. Yeah, that, that is a concern, right? Because the regulation has put itself into knots now, right? I mean, you have the HKC, the, the EUSSR, dime if you could. I mean, I had my guy said, what are these various regulations where some people may not even understand? So I made him a crude little boxes of all these regulations that exist right now, right? Mm -hmm. So here we have all this basil and yeah. HKC <laughs> on one side, and then you have all these regulations in Europe on the other side. Just stack them up. So when you stack these regulation, HKC is supposed to take care of all these boxes, right? Will it? The regulation has to make a decision. Probably not. These four boxes should actually go like that. <laughs> and really, this box should remain, but it won't happen, you know? <laughs> Sorry. But I mean, this was the closest regulation. So my point is, the HKC should be doing that, but it's going to be a challenge, you know, because it, how do you, the basil certainly comes in, the ban amendment comes into play. That's for Satori said his team to figure it out, how they're going to come out of it, and that requires guts, and you said you, if you, I'm glad you said you're optimistic, because you really need the support and the will to people to educate themselves, that, you know, the, it was well-meaning regulation at one stage, but now IMS come up with this nice little regulation. Even if you look at the effectiveness in the last 10 years since USRR and HKC has come, the role. Now you have Maersk and, and, and uh, you know, MSC and those guys who are coming to India, they're saying we like HKC, right? And they're, they're making an attempt to do it. And it seems like they're having success with that. But if, if for your rightful reasons, you have a policy that you don't want to go to India, which I, I respect that as well. So I think there's a lot of dynamics here at play, and the main issue is regulation. Nobody wants a knock, number one, and number two is the headline risk. Once you take away these two shackles, I think you can make much more sensible, I don't know if sensible. Anil, don't, don't get me wrong. We didn't say we are not going to India. We need your progressive yards on the EU SRR list. That's the request. Yeah, because you're making the assumption that EUSSR list is a better list than HKC, which it isn't. Right. But, but that's, the legal, that's the legal requirement. That's what I say. It's a legal we thing. We are adhering to yeah. by all means. Yeah, yeah. No discussion. Yeah, Sorry. Yeah, no. Uh, three hours on Sintos arrived a little later. So it's yeah. uh, Kamiko, could I just ask you, um, yeah. luckily for you, the EUSRR is on the floor. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but you do have the Hong Kong Convention, sure. the Basel Convention and the Basel Ban, because you are an OECD country. How is that playing out for your members? And how, how is that managed by your members, those contradictions? Um, uh, uh, we'd like to say we have to concentrate on now the Hong Kong Convention. EU SRL must be 
amended in line with the Hong Kong Convention, just in accordance with its own uh, article, I understand. Well, of course, I know it is difficult and still it takes much time, so you are a bit struggled with that. But still, now uh, we need uh, Hong Kong uh, concentrate on the Hong Kong Convention and we need Hong Kong Convention uh, compliant yards and increase m more and more. And yeah, that's, that's <laughs> our hope. And Basel Convention, um, it, I understand it's a bit difficult, but uh, uh, Basel Convention uh, should be exempted the Hong Kong Convention. And owners uh, export their ships in accordance with the Hong Kong Convention should be totally free from Basel Convention. Of course, I know it's difficult, but uh, it should be, we hope. Maybe our <laughs> we all of us hope the same, I, I understand. Wolfram, uh, <coughs> a question uh, uh, on the uh, the app from uh, Henning again. Henning Grumman, thank you, thank you, Henning. Mm -hmm. Asking, um, do you carry out uh, due diligence orders before uh, audits before selling your ships through cycling, cycling, and how do you ensure that the requirements are fulfilled? And in the case there's a cash buyer, would you consider his team or her team of supervisors, or is the risk of conflict of interest too huge? Actually, we have a vendor in, 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 in the situation contracted now for, for many years. Very well-known, reliable contractor. And uh, I'm, I'm afraid I cannot uh, comment on the details, but that's in place. The philosophy, you have a supervisor in the shipyard when you are building a ship. You have a supervisor in the shipyard when you are dismantling a ship. That's it in a nutshell. It's the same thing. So we had uh, you do vetting of the yards uh, from an ESG point of view, and then have an independent supervisor to uh, to follow the process and make sure that it's uh, is done according to the requirements. Um, I think that will that will remain due to all the regulations. You have to uh, be responsible for who you choose to partner and who you sell to. You have to own the process. You do. And I think I just need to make one case. We're kind of talking about how regulation is driving this. But I think for, for many of the peers here and, and the partners in SRTI, when they did it, started working on responsible ship recycling, it was not a regulation. It was a moral imperative and the right thing to do. And I think we can um, also lead and do the best, best we can to be, be responsible and, and live up to our own values. Mm -hmm. There's another question here from Anonymous, which uh, I always like the Anonymous questions. That was why the app was invented, in fact. Yeah. It's asking a rather pointed question about how much, basically how much sustainable recycling is going on at the, uh, the Brownsville uh, yard in the, in the US, um, and uh, making some rather, uh, some mm. allegations that uh, maybe we'll, that we'll move over. But I mean, is anybody aware of uh, Sotiris, you know, the, on the, on the, no. Any, anybody have any no. insight into that? No. Um, Anil, on the going back to that question about the uh, the, the oversight of the, the audits, um, should uh, cash buyers' uh, representatives be trusted to conduct the uh, the audits of the um, uh, of the, the due diligence audits for recycling? So my view is, uh, if you have the resources, like uh, the panelists here have it, they should have their own person. You know, it's 
makes it cleaner. We have Pia sitting there, who spends three. So there are people who can do that. But then there are owners that who don't have the resources. And if indeed we want to do it in a sustainable that's where we come in. I think the program we have this SSORP, it's because I've heard of this, all these issues and I like to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So that's why we created this. We have done 100, 110, but we are not competing with the main guys. We are just offering it to people who otherwise cannot commit the resources. Last question for me before I'm very happy to take any questions from the, uh, the floor. Um, a little earlier today, we've heard various suggestions that increasingly the um, uh, ship owners, particularly listed ship owners, particularly ship owners uh, uh, in uh, OECD countries with a close relationship with consumer markets, they are increasingly selling their ships before the end of life because they simply do not uh, wish to be engaged in the recycling process because it is too dangerous for them, it is too risky, and there's a clear, clearly a business case. Um, is that, do you think that is, uh, and I'd like to put it to the three major owners here, do you think that is a, uh, uh, an increasing trend and a likelihood that uh, few end-of-life ships will be owned by those types of owners? Annette, do you, do you see that as a, a growing likelihood? Um, I wouldn't like to answer on behalf of other companies. I think it comes back to the intention. I cannot see Valenius Willemsen doing that be because the intention is to avoid the recycling part of the, uh, of the vessel's life. That I cannot see. Um, but of course, if there are uh, earlier in the vessel's life, uh, commercial reasons and practical market reasons for selling, um, that could be, but not... Uh, not to avoid our responsibility. Jessalyn, you obviously at Mercy, you do see the possibility of a genuinely circular mm. uh, process in this. So Absolutely. you see the, uh, the end of life being a key part of the business cycle. Absolutely. That is a yes for, for us because we only sell directly to the yard owners yeah. and there will be a restrictive uh, clauses for, for cash buyers in, in this situation. Thanks. Any, any questions? My question is, as the, all the big team is here from the ship owner side and also Mr. Sharma and with the live example, he has explained very much. Uh, but can we have a thought on ship recycling as a service? Like Ban Amendment is saying, the export, uh, West export we cannot do, EUSSR, West regulations of the EU. But we can recycle the ship and send back the waste to the EU. Is there, or we can do a service, we can do on the profit sharing as a SIP recycling, as a SIP recycler. It will be a win-win situation for both SIP so owner as well re as... repatriating the waste yeah. back to Europe. Back to Europe. Any, any, any takers? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just <laughs> trying to have opinion. I mean, this has been our argument uh, for a long time that we shouldn't split up the market between uh, OECD and non-OECD countries. And it's not my uh, position to to, to, to say what the Commission would reply, or <laughs> European policymakers who are doing a lot of work with European politicians. Their first question or comment when we come up with this argument is fine, but uh, demand will create eventually supply. It's a very simplistic, probably naive argument to make, 
but this is the mindset of the people that sometimes regulate the industry. That's why my point was that we need to spread these positive stories and make them more engaged in ship recycling to understand better the industry. Hello. Yeah, uh, actually, uh, I've been attending Tradewinds Conference for last 13 years, I think. So uh, 13 years back, the ship owners looked confused, like they were not sure that where to send the vessels, they wanted more HKC yards. So we put a lot of effort and made so many uh, HKC yards now, and most of the yards are empty. And the ship owners today and yesterday, I heard all the ship owners, they still look confused. And they are talking about now ES, EU standards, HKC, Basel Amendment, uh, Basel Ban. So uh, it's a very uh, difficult situation for the ship recyclers that we have invested 10 to 15 million dollars to upgrade the facility and uh, we have done so much work. Uh, only the people that comes to the yard or the facility appreciates. Like uh, we had sorities uh, uh, about four months back in the yard and they were surprised that uh, in Bangladesh, so many yards are developed, uh, even the Japanese Ship Owners Association. So we need to engage more, I think, with the European Commission that they are not coming out of their shell. So they need to come out. And I think EXA and, and BIMCO and those kind of uh, uh, people can influence them. They need to engage more. In 2015, I was invited at EXA to give a presentation and I was really surprised that most of the ship owners were so re relaxed about the EU regulation and they were not putting any efforts uh, to change. Uh, whereas ship recyclers, we were pushing that EU regulation shouldn't come. So I think uh, we need a situation where uh, you should say enough is enough. Uh, we want to send our vessels to HKC compliant yards and come, let's do something together. I think that's a, that will be the way forward, I guess. At that point, may I just say many thanks to the, uh, the panelists for this final session. If you'd like to uh, give them a round of applause, please. Here's more on the environment and the business of the ocean. The Green Seas newsletter explored the technology innovations that could allow hydrogen to play a bigger role in shipping's fuel mix. Hydrogen is appealing because it has zero carbon emissions, but it presents challenges because of its energy density. But we talked to Tor Anger of Tico 2030 about the company's efforts to bring a compact fuel cell system to shipping. And we talked to MAN Energy Solutions about its work to investigate a hydrogen-fueled engine. Read this story and more at tradewindsnews.com and get the next edition of the newsletter in your inbox by signing up at tinyurl.com slash greenseas. Our colleagues at Hydrogen Insight have reported on the mountain of cash that the U.S. government is pumping into hydrogen hubs. The Biden administration is investing $7 billion in seven hubs, including some that will help decarbonize operations in ports. Read that story and more at hydrogeninsight.com. And our colleagues at Recharge report that the state of New York has delivered a blow to more than four gigawatts of offshore wind power. The state's Public Service Commission has denied petitions by joint ventures of BP with Equinor and Orsted with Eversource 
for increases in the price of their offtake contracts. Read this story and more at rechargenews.com. Music for this episode is by Alicia Sutudo from Pixabay.